Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Crown and Crozier. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. In an American context, it's commonly asserted that the intellectual architecture of church-state separation and the guarantees of religious freedom codified in the First Amendment rested on a distinct foundation of Protestant liberalism colored by Enlightenment philosophy. But what if that's an overly simplistic assessment of things? What if there's more to the story? If we hold the magnifying glass a little closer, is it possible to examine the arc of religious freedom in colonial America and discover the unique fingerprints of Catholic thought and influence? Over the next hour, our aim is to give a fair hearing to this hypothesis. Our guest is Dr. Michael Breidenbach, Associate Professor of History at Ave Maria University. He's the author of Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. And he's written extensively on First Amendment and religious freedom issues. Don't forget to subscribe to Crown and Crozier wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating, or hit us up on social media and our website, www.crownandcrozier.com. There are two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die his majesty's good servant, at God's first. Dr. Michael Breidenbach, welcome to Crown and Crozier. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's good to be with you. We're here to talk about your recent book, Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. And I got to say, reading this book was quite the experience. It induced a range of emotions. On the one hand, it was fascinating to sift through the many historical and theological nuggets, which you explored. I got to admit, on the other hand, there was a lot that made me uncomfortable. I mean, you challenge a lot of conventional wisdom in here, and it forced me to rethink and re-examine many things that I've learned and accepted for quite a long time. We're going to get into all of that and more in our discussion, but perhaps to begin, just tell me what inspired you to write the book. So thanks again for having me on. And I, I started this book as a doctoral student at the University of Cambridge, and uh, I was interested in, in studying American history from a distance, as it were, um, from a, a British perspective, because so much of early America um, has to be understood in, in an Atlantic world perspective, right? A British and French and uh, Caribbean even uh, perspective. So when I was there, I encountered a world-renowned historian, Quinton Skinner, who wrote early in his career a two-volume political thought history. And in that history, I encountered something that, um, although I was sort of well interested and steeped in Catholic history, I had never encountered before, which is the conciliarist tradition. And that sparked an interest in my, my own sort of personal and, and intellectual formation, because I effectively discovered, or at least hypothesized, that perhaps Catholics at the, at the American founding perhaps drew from the conciliarist tradition. That, to me, could only explain why a Catholic could sign the Declaration of Independence, that mm-hmm. they began to think about the way of church-state relations that uh, began to diminish uh, papal authority. How else could we declare ourselves free and independent states? And so it was only a hypothesis at that point. I didn't know much about Catholics at the American founding, but I basically used that sort of intellectual nugget and began to look at the sources in the early American founding to see whether that was um, something uh, that uh, these Catholics were interested in. I should also note that, you know, because I was raised Catholic, I went to Catholic parishes and and saw, you know, American flag and a Vatican or Holy See flag uh, flanking uh, both sides of the altar. And that was the kind of just so history that uh, we had been uh, given. And I wondered whether that was um, as simple as it seemed. And so I wanted to see if there is a compatibility between America and, and a Catholic faith. On what grounds could we find that compatibility? And while others looked at that from a kind of abstract or theoretical perspective, uh, as many do today, I wanted to look at how actual Catholics in history answer that sort of question. And among the things I love about your book, the quick answer is, I mean, simple is the operative word because this legacy in history is nothing but, I mean, the layers of complexity are are quite overwhelming. We're going to go down the rabbit hole of conciliarism, but it seems to me that the prerequisite to do that and kind of the prerequisite for understanding the context of your book is understanding the larger canvas upon which all of these extraordinary developments from the uh, the early 
colonization of British North America through the American Revolution and then the adoption of the U.S. Constitution, it seems like the stage and the context for that is understanding the nature of the papacy's engagement in world affairs. As it comes across so lucidly in your book, that provoked very visceral reactions, not just from non-Catholics, but from Catholics themselves. So maybe give us some examples, this backdrop of hands-on papal engagement in civil affairs of, of, of other countries, stretching back in the centuries, predating even the first settlers arriving in America. So one of the famous examples uh, that many Americans uh, turn to as one of the foundational bodies of law for, for the United States uh, is Magna Carta. And what uh, Americans often don't realize is that um, a pope annulled uh, Magna Carta. And what, one of the ways um, that uh, this, this worked is that the pope understood that he had a spiritual power that extended to the affairs of state for the sake of spiritual ends. So he understood Magna Carta and other popes understood future laws and uh, rulers as um, problematic for, for the church or for the proper understanding about the relationship between a king and his people or a proper understanding about religion itself. So in the case of um, a pope excommunicating Queen Elizabeth I, these are the sort of um, reasons that popes have given, that they have the plenitude of spiritual power, and that plenitude of spiritual power can extend into the temporal affairs of kingdoms that are not the popes, properly speaking, you know, like the papal states or something like that. And certainly that extends to the souls of Catholics as well, whether it's a Catholic monarch or his or her Catholic subjects, or both. So Magna Carta, the nullification of Magna Carta, the excommunication of Elizabeth I. Um, these are sort of uh, obviously medieval examples, early modern examples, but we can think of other examples perhaps more up to date when the Pope uh, was involved in uh, successive assassination plots of Adolf Hitler, for instance. The doctrine of tyrannicide was apparently still seen as, as at least operative as late as the 20th century. The justification was not that the Pope wanted to take over Germany as a, as a temporal realm, but rather saw that uh, the threat of Adolf Hitler uh, presented a clear and present danger for the people of Germany, for the people of Europe, indeed the world, that the church was at risk and so on for this. We can also think of less uh, extreme examples. So I'm thinking of John Paul II and his involvement with the Solidarity Movement uh, in communist Poland in order to sort of take uh, communist, communism out of Poland, or perhaps mo most contemporarily, Pope Francis addressing both houses of Congress um, a few years ago and talking about what we would call political issues, but of course there are also moral issues, uh, the environment, uh, abortion, and so on. So uh, these are all papal interventions in political affairs um, with varying degrees of severity and repercussions, um, but all justified un under the rubric of spiritual power. But it does seem, I mean, there is a contrast and a qualitative difference between the Pope coming to address the joint session of yes. Congress and seeking to exert influence or exert moral suasion uh, in terms of offering guidance as to how U.S. legislators should pass public policy. And what we saw in the centuries past and in the centuries leading up to the first Catholic settlers coming to British North America and to the, to the American Revolution. Among the examples that you cite in your book that struck me the most, uh, one of the, the papal bulls that you mention in the work, Inter Cetera from 1492, Pope Alexander VI. Sorry, 1493, this is one year after Columbus discovers the New World. Pope Alexander VI, who himself no coincidence, is Spanish, right. uh, essentially grants Spain and Portugal monopoly over discovery and exploration and evangelization uh, in the New World, present-day North and South America. And reading through that papal decree with the lens of modernity and 500 years having lapsed, it's astounding to modern eyes and ears that a pope would make that kind of claim on being able to draw a line in the Atlantic and grant the landmass beyond that to two specific temporal realms. And among other things, one wonders what the reaction would have been by other, from other Catholic rulers, you know, the French, the English, they're going, why are we cut out of this? We're, we're good Catholic monarchs. Speak to that a little bit more and how that would have resonated in the type of 
reaction that would have prompted from the people in power across European states, particularly those who were excluded. That's a great example, Patrick. Alexander's uh, decree is breathtaking in scope and was the bane of uh, English colonizers, right? Those who are promoting English colonization, which happens later than the Spanish and Portuguese. The papal bull, which is a very solemn papal uh, pronouncement, uh, minces no words that anyone who abrogates, goes against this papal decree, will be ipso facto excommunicated from the Catholic Church. And so the one way to analyze this is simply the Pope intervening in European affairs, right? Tipping the scales for certain countries who are Catholic, that are Catholic, as opposed to others, and granting them sort of, as you say, monopoly rights to establish uh, churches, to explore, to trade, and so on. The problem here, of course, is when England gets into the game after the English Reformation, and um, we have a, a so-called Catholic colony of Maryland. Effectively, the reason why it could be seen as a Catholic colony is because it has a Catholic proprietor, right? Someone who owns it, granted by the king. So this looks like a Catholic coming to the Western Hemisphere and uh, seeking to plant a, a colony against this papal decree. And so, you know, one of the questions that cannot be answered is whether uh, George Calvert, right, who dies a little bit before the final seal is set of the Maryland Charter, so his son Cecil Calvert, whether Cecil Calvert was thereby excommunicated from the Catholic Church because of this. Now, this is all resolved later on in a treaty between these countries that um, basically Spain and, and Portugal recognize other, other countries in their so-called monopoly territory. But, you know, at the time that had not been decided, that treaty. And so, you know, effectively, this sort of complicates Catholic involvement in the New World that uh, was not Spanish. So I think this is a great example of the way in which uh, the Pope uh, saw his, his authority uh, fit to intervene in these kind of temporal affairs. Uh, but not st strictly speaking, only temporal affairs, right? Because, again, the, the point of, of mission and evangelization spreading the gospel throughout the whole world is in the mind of uh, the Pope and um, at least some of the Spanish and Portuguese settlers. But, but nonetheless, it complicates our, again, our just-so story about uh, Catholic involvement in, in British North America, at least. Yeah, and among other things, a thread that plays out throughout your history and, and throughout this narrative is some of these decrees, either in full or in part, were ignored. Uh, right. or overlooked, again, by, by Catholics and Protestants alike, adding an additional layer of complexity. But just to kind of round out for, for the benefit of our listeners, some of the, the examples, again, that, that really jumped out to me reading your book around the nature of the engagement and interventions by the papacy in temporal affairs. I mean, you had popes saying that subjects who swore oaths of allegiance to their kings could be absolved from those oaths, or that the pope sought to excommunicate or depose certain rulers, remove them from their throne, and then on occasion, giving green light, giving the green light to Catholics to, as you say, to, to murder, to engage in tyrannicide, to kill an excommunicated king. I found myself in so many instances reading your book, I don't know how to make sense of this as someone who takes his faith seriously, who seeks to, to, who seeks to put the, the level of, of deference uh, into our institutions and the seed of Peter that our faith and magisterium commands. Making sense of all this, in hindsight, I found to be extraordinarily challenging. And, and, and we'll go down a bit of some of those paths uh, later, later in this conversation. But, but kind of circling back to the discussion around Maryland and how uh, Mr. Calvert uh, first came to express interest or signal interest in, in joining the wave of, of settlers going to the New World. What drew... Calvert and, and those other settlers, particularly the Catholic ones, what was motivating them to look across the Atlantic and, and seek a home elsewhere? Well, the, their motivations were many. And certainly uh, in the case of George Calvert, the original sort of um, figure who convinces the king to uh, sign this charter for Maryland, he is effectively out of a job because he has been serving the king for many years dutifully indefatigably loyal to the crown, and yet he reverts to his childhood Catholicism uh, at basically the height of his political career as a civil servant. He's the, uh, the first secretary of state, which means he's the, the right-hand uh, civil servant for, for the king. 
which means that you can't take the oath of allegiance and supremacy in good conscience. One of those oaths, the supremacy, basically says that uh, the king is the supreme governor of the Church of England, and as a, a Catholic in communion with the Pope, that's a non-starter. So he can't sign these oaths, uh, so instead he receives a, a knighthood and uh, some land in Ireland, but he's an ambitious man. He comes from Yorkshire tenant farmers, and uh, because he conforms to the Church of England in his childhood, is forced to, um, he's able to take a position at, uh, at Trinity College, Oxford, uh, as a student, um, becomes a lawyer, and um, has a very ambitious political career, but now he's out of his um, political position. So in some ways, you can see his colonization effort first in Newfoundland, Canada. That fails because of the, the harsh winter. Um, many of the settlers die. After that, he tries to found a new colony, what he names after the queen consort, who is a Catholic, incidentally, Henrietta Maria. So Maryland is named immediately for Henrietta Maria and, um, and secures that patent or that charter for Maryland. It's an extensive uh, land that he secures for himself, uh, but as I said, he dies, so it is bequeathed to his son, Cecil. But in effect, it's, it's a very large tract of land that he owns in his own person, so that's a proprietary colony. And so in some ways, the motivation for this is, is to, he's an ambitious man and he wants um, to increase his, um, his revenue, to uh, increase his land holdings, and so on. On the other hand, because he reverted to his childhood faith of Catholicism, I think there's a religious dimension here. He didn't have to do that. It would have been much easier for him, socially, politically, economically, to remain a conforming Protestant, at least outwardly. And instead, he um, reverts uh, to Catholicism. Uh, He doesn't also have to allow uh, Catholics to settle in his colony. He never settled himself. Cecil never did either. But he didn't have to go out of his way to recruit Catholics. Um, It could have been a broadly Christian colony that conformed loosely to uh, the Church of England. And instead, he goes out of his way to grant toleration for Protestants and Catholics. So I think there's an important tolerationist uh, motivation here as well. He wants to show that it's possible to be both English and Catholic. Yeah, because remembering the context of the times, it's the early 1600s, England has gone through all the disruption and dislocation following the Reformation and the zigzagging and the seesawing between Henry VIII, then Edward, then Mary, and then Elizabeth, and and all the tumult and and all the bloodshed that ensued. One can presume or project that the proverbial prospect of a better life, a freer life, seemed to be part of the calculus. That's right, and that's certainly the case for the Catholic settlers and for that matter, the Protestant ones. Many of the the settlers coming to uh, the English dominions in America uh, are looking for a better life. I mean the white settlers. For those who are enslaved, obviously, it's it's an entirely different story. But for those who are more or less free to come, even if they may be indentured upon arrival, they're, they're looking for a better life, better financial prospects. They're also looking for a share in governance, I think, too. The colonial experiment is, is much... Um, more interested in sort of self-governments and local governance that's uh, far from the crown. And that allows for a lot of the legal experimentation, like toleration, that has no place in England proper. So I think that's also an important consideration too. But of course, to be a Catholic at the time in England, one could perhaps lead a quiet life, not make uh, great um, noises about one's faith, maybe go to an underground church or a, you know, a local manor that could, could house you know, a few dozen Catholics for a Sunday mass with clandestine priests. But to actually board these ships from London to the Dominions in America was a very risky prospect. And I don't just mean a life and limb across you know, the Atlantic uh, waters. I also mean that ship searchers would try to find all those people aboarding these ships and tender the oath of allegiance. So before you go to the new world, you have to pledge allegiance to the king. Not every subject of the king had to do this, by the way. It was just sort of assumed that you'd be loyal. But if you're going to take a political office or something like this, um, or if you're going to go to the new world, you had to take this oath. And that's where the riskiness uh, for Catholics to join this colonial experiment comes in. Because the Pope said, if you take this oath, you'd be excommunicated. Here again is another intervention in temporal affairs. 
And the oath, in some ways, sort of encapsulates all the Protestant anxieties and hostility towards Catholics on a political level, because it effectively says that um, I swear not to basically believe that the Pope has the kind of power that we've been talking about, right? Absolving oaths, intervening in the affairs of the king, in the worst case, sort of deposing or, or murdering the king and his heirs or successors. So all that sort of um, anxiety that uh, stems really from the catalyst here is the Guy Fox plot of 1605, the gunpowder plot, is sort of crystallized into that oath. And Catholics need to sign, everyone needs to sign it, but Catholics in particular need to pledge their allegiance through this oath. And so a lot of creativity and uh, thought is put into how Catholics can or cannot do that. And if they can't, then what's the alternative? And if they can, on what grounds uh, is it justified, given that the Pope has said that he would excommunicate those who do? The picture that you're painting is one of a very fine line that English Catholics had to walk in terms of demonstrating their loyalty as subjects of the king, but remaining faithful to their faith and, and the tenets of the faith. And I think that's kind of a good segue to bring in the examination of conciliarism and talk a little bit about, one, what that school of thought was, and then two, how it played such an essential role in setting up the social and the legal architecture in Maryland. Sure. So one of the central organs of my book, Our Dear About Liberty, is that Catholics became American by declaring independence from the Pope. We often hear about declaring independence from King George III or, or Britain generally. But one of the things that I want to stress is that Catholics, in some ways, had to show their loyalty before they obtained their liberty. So loyalty before liberty is the kind of maxim of both a monarchical regime, like we have in 1600 England, and even uh, 18th century sort of Republican government as well in America. So Catholics were presented these two dangerous options, right? You either are a potential traitor or a potential excommunicant. And these are not great options. And so people like the Calverts and later the Carrolls, um, two famous uh, Maryland, Maryland associated families, have to sort of figure out based on Catholic resources of their own, how they're going to resolve this, what might seem to be a irresolvable paradox. And this is where conciliarism comes in, in my argument, because conciliarism is basically a corporate theory of the church, what we might call an ecclesiology, right? A, a view of church governance. What does the church look like? What is its nature? How is it structured? And, you know, to, to reduce it perhaps too simplistically, I mean, there's one major view that looks like this. The Pope is a kind of absolute monarch of a kingdom, a kingdom of souls, uh, a kingdom also of temporal holdings and so on as well, a kingdom with international alliances and, and all the rest, and a kingdom obviously uh, as a foretaste for the kingdom of God. Uh, this Pope is an absolute monarch, which means that the plenitude of spiritual and temporal authority in the papal states is reserved in him and his successors. He's elected, perhaps as a sort of elective monarchy, in other words, not hereditary, but it's a monarchy nonetheless. And that means that uh, finally, when we look at infallibility, or if we look at um, uh, sort of church governance of how decisions are made in the church, finally the authority rests in the Pope. And he may deputize some of that authority to bishops, to um, other councils, and so on, but ultimately it rests in the Pope. There's another view, uh, the conciliarist view, um, that argues that effectively the church, if I could use the political analogy, because that's how it was understood in the Middle Ages as well, as a kind of republic, where the pope is, let's call it the first among equals among the bishops, the Bishop of Rome, um, but does not have the kind of spiritual authority that means that um, everything rests in him. In fact, the authority is shared, and most visibly when church councils are convened, when all the bishops preside, are assembled, um, and uh, they can declare authoritatively, infallibly, on faith and morals as bishops together. So the Pope, under this view, is not infallible by himself. And so the Pope can, uh, because he's elected, uh, be reprimanded, um, even deposed, um, just as a president of a republic can be thrown out of office if 
he's against uh, goes against the laws. So effectively, the Pope is circumscribed by a body of law and you know decisions based on councils. And concilism also came to the to another important point by the time we get to the 17th and 18th century which is that uh, the Pope does not have the power to intervene in the temporal affairs of other countries in the way that we've been describing in, in our conversation, right? A nullification of, of laws, declaring war and peace, absolving subjects from their oaths to their rulers, and so on and so forth. They reject all that sort of temporal authority as well. And so that's, if, if you take from the kind of Anglo-American context here, that's the sort of view that would seem much more compatible with both the monarchic view of the, the king has power over the Church of England and is sovereign in his dominions, uh, as well as American Republican thought, right? Concilism looks much more compatible than the absolute monarch view of the Pope. And, and I think you mentioned in the book, there, there did seem to be, I think it was one church council, I think the Council of Constance, where there was an affirmation or, or, or almost uh, the council giving its blessing to this to this school of thought that the bishops gathered. Uh... Sorry, yeah, this, this ecclesiology was formalized in the Council of Constance, which is in the 15th century. And that was effectively to end the Western Schism when, the, when there were multiple claimants uh, to the chair of Peter. And it declared itself higher uh, than any papal spiritual authority itself and any subsequent councils. It also asked that councils be convened much more regularly and it repudiated papal claims uh, to temporal authority uh, in other countries. So um, there are lots of different variants to conciliarism, um, but the Council of Constance is, is one of the councils that really affirmed uh, this view. And so by the time we get to the 18th century, we can see Anglophones, sort of uh, people that I've studied in the book, using these two double denials, basically, the double denial of papal authority and temporal affairs in other countries, and uh, the denial of papal infallibility. So the Pope is infallible by himself only. They thought that there is infallibility in the church, it's only in councils. As I say, I, I mean, among the inner conflict and tension that I felt reading your book is, I find myself sympathizing with the conciliarists, putting themselves in, in their shoes, in their context, in their environment, uh, based on what they had observed in terms of papal interventions and temporal affairs. And then what they were trying to achieve in terms of their settlements for the new world uh, and how that, a large part of that was animated by, by bringing the faith uh, and being able to practice the faith more freely. Let's kind of round out our, our conversation on, on uh, the, the first Catholic settlers in Maryland and, and maybe connect the dots for us in terms of the conciliarist ethic and how that translated into the significant steps forward for religious toleration that were achieved in Maryland uh, particularly the the passage of its signature toleration act in in 1649 i mean why was all of that so significant and, and how did conciliarism play a role in that that's a great question so um maryland is exceptional uh not only for being a colony founded by a catholic uh, ruled by a catholic um, but also having a significant um, uh, number of catholics in the colony itself and so whereas, you know, in England, Catholics were presumed dangerous until proven loyal, Catholics in Maryland were um, simply, in some ways, on the same level as any other settler in that colony. And so how did this happen? Well, part of it is because George and Cecil Calvert had this, this notion that you could be both a good Englishman and a good Catholic. And they, as I said, grounded that, that compatibility on certain conciliarist assumptions. The reason why I think that is because they think, ultimately, based on uh, some uh, archival documents that I found in, in, in London, uh, in which they basically revised the Oath of Allegiance. This is in order to uh, solve that uh, problem of Catholics not being able to swear that sort of oath, because the Pope said, if you do, you'll be excommunicated. And what I found basically is that they excise all the problematic clauses of, of papal authority. It becomes a simple uh, fealty oath, right? I will bear full you know, allegiance to the king and his successors. And that's basically it. Uh, I'll let the king know if I hear of any assassination plots, that sort of thing. Um, so the Pope is completely absent from the final oath that is in Maryland. So historians have sort of wondered, like, well, what happened um, between the original oath of allegiance of 1606, 
right after the gunpowder plot and the the other oath in 1630s in Maryland? And the answer is uh, that they have draft oaths that were not formalized and published, but can be found in archives. And so in the book, I reproduce those, those draft oaths. And it shows that actually for Cecil Calvert, he was perfectly willing to say that the Pope does not have this sort of power. The problem was that it would never fly in Rome, as one of the secret agents of the Pope said in England. His name is uh, Giorgio Panzani. And um, so Cecil Calvert was trying to walk a very, very fine line um, between London and Rome here. And he did what any good lawyer would do, which is to excise the problematic clauses and suspend it in a kind of legal limbo, right? So let's just not talk about it. Let's all just say that we're going to be uh, legion uh, to the Pope on spiritual matters uh, and uh, legion to the King on, on temporal ones. And of course, there are going to be conflicts, but, but not to the level of, of a Guy Fox. And what's amazing is that that practically worked. The King was satisfied with this. The Holy See never condemned it, uh, as far as I can tell. And so the colony uh, continued. And so basically what we have now is, is a, a kind of legal loophole that allows Catholics to settle by their own oath, and then effectively a kind of de facto toleration from the very beginning. Uh, the instructions that Cecil Calvert gives uh, to his brother, Leonard, who becomes the governor of Maryland, says that everyone should practice their religion as quietly as may be. There should be no sort of harm of, of anyone for practicing their beliefs on the ship and when they land. And so we have this image of sort of Protestants going to their religious ceremony after landing, and then Father Andrew White, SJ, you know, celebrating the first mass in, uh, in Maryland in a different location. That becomes the sort of de facto toleration regime in Maryland. It's codified in 1649, as you said, in the Act Concerning Religion, or the Maryland Toleration Act as it's uh, known now. And this is an extraordinary document because I argue it's the first systematic legalization of toleration in the English dominions. We don't get a English Toleration Act until 1689, after the so-called Glorious Revolution. And we have toleration-based uh, colonies in, in North America already, like Rhode Island. Um, but if you look at their laws, Rhode Island basically says, People can practice their religion as they see fit, guided by their conscience. I don't think that's a systematic law. The Maryland Toleration Act provides fines and punishments for those who, who go against this law. Uh, it provides very specific ideas of what toleration means. Uh, it specifies who's tolerant and who's not. It provides fines for those who uh, use uh, certain names pejoratively. Um, it might even be called, as one scholar has suggested, the first hate speech legislation in, in England uh, or the English dominions. Because if you say the Virgin Mary's name pejoratively, there's a fine for that. If you uh, say the word Jesuit pejoratively, there's a fine for that. And if you say, you know, um, a, a Protestant uh, term pejoratively, there's also a fine. And so what we find here is a much more systematic and comprehensive toleration law um, that will be replicated in other countries and colonies including Barbados and Jamaica and, and other very religiously diverse colonies under British holdings. So it's, it's a path-breaking document. And um, when James Wilson lectures uh, later on in 1790s, he says, you know, we talk about John Locke a lot about toleration, um, but what about the, what he calls ungracious silence about Calvert? And so at least for one of the American founders, they recognize the, the important legacy of the Maryland Toleration Act and this Catholic ruler, Cecil Calvert. So a, a takeaway from all that is what the Calverts were able to achieve in Maryland was very much a breakthrough. I mean, this was charting new territory uh, as it related to religious liberty. They arguably got a better deal, not just for Catholics, but for Christians of all denominations in the new world, you know, relative to what the, the situation at that time was. In, in England, if you kind of fast forward from the mid-1600s Maryland and the, the breakthrough that the Calverts were able to achieve, and again, recognizing they were walking that fine line between demonstrating their loyalty as subjects to the crown, but also fidelity to their faith, you fast forward over 100 years to the time of the American Revolution, and then you had 
American Catholics, again, with families in Maryland, the, the Carroll family exercising a lot of leadership, they found themselves in the lead up to and then in, in the midst of the Revolutionary War, wanting to ensure they were remaining faithful to their church, but they were rebelling against the crown. And so the, the, the loyalty, the civil loyalty test had either been diminished or diluted. Like what happened? What happened in that intervening years where Maryland's Catholics were establishing a regime of toleration and then 125 years later, they're taking up arms against the king? It's a great question. How do we go from papist royalists to papist patriots, right? Mm. Um, and, and how d did Catholics fall from this kind of grace in English politics? The, the quick answer is that the Calvert regime is a bright but um, very short star, right, in, in this story. Because effectively, after Cecil Calvert is, is well established, he needs to um, confront one of the, the, the worst episodes in uh, English 17th century history, the English Civil Wars, which um, engulf England, Scotland, Ireland, and, and, and of course, uh, the American colonies. And so the other context to the Act Concerning Toleration that we just mentioned is that Cecil Calvert is worried about losing his political authority. He's worried about the way in which the parliamentarians are going to take over uh, the colonies. And remember, Maryland is a, as with everyone, a royalist-based colony of some description, right? There are different types of colonies, but, but effectively it's all granted by the king at some level. Parliament never granted authority for, for any colony. And so um, he's worried about his political position, right? It seems the colony seems to rest on it being a monarchy, right? Um, in a monarchy. So Cecil Calvert is, is issuing this Religious Toleration Act not only because he believes in religious toleration as a theoretical and practical policy, but also because he needs to shore up political alliances. And so um, he succeeds but but um, he continues to he continues to be under threat by Protestant agitators. To make a long story short, effectively Protestants take over his government. This is especially true after the Revolution of 1688. So the Act Concerning Toleration is uh, amended to exclude Catholics. Protestants now take over uh, the proprietary government. I mean, the, the Calverts still own Maryland, like as a piece of land. Uh, but they don't uh, directly control it anymore. And later, Calverts actually convert to, to the Church of England. So it becomes a de facto sort of Protestant colony in the late 17th century. And certainly by, by all of 18th century, um, Catholics are, again, persecuted. And that's where the, the, the Carroll family comes in, um, because the Carroll family that came from Ireland, the first Charles Carroll, the so-called settler, um, comes in 1688, just as the revolution of 1688 is happening in England. Uh, he obtains um, a position as, as attorney general, effectively, of Maryland. But then, you know, the Maryland legislature, which is now majority Protestant, uh, tried to get rid of him. Um, there's a lot of persecution uh, that we can go into, but effectively it goes back to what English Catholics had faced uh, before the founding of Maryland. Let's chase that line then. Maryland does a reversal, becomes Protestant majority and Protestant controlled. What's the situation for Catholics in the, the American colonies leading up to the Revolutionary War? And, and why do they ultimately decide to throw their lot in with, with overturning the king? So um, it's a slow process uh, to warming up to revolution, right? M most people were not in favor of revolution. I mean, if you ask most people, even in the 1760s, would you like to um, disassociate from the king, um, cut your ties of loyalty to the king, they would find you a traitor, which is what it is. <laughs> and so the Catholic story is interesting because in some ways they are gaining more toleration from someone like King George III. Um, think of uh, you know, the, the Quebec Act, for instance, um, which grants uh, you know, Catholics the free exercise of their, of their religion uh, up north. Um, think about the way in which uh, King George III actually has amicable relations uh, with the Holy See uh, leading up to the American Revolution, such that the Pope is willing to say that he's a, he's a very benevolent sovereign because he's approving the first Catholic Relief Act shortly before the, the War for Independence. So in some ways, 
what we find is is the Hanoverian kings, right, King George III and so on, are much more willing to grant toleration to Catholics uh, in ways that, you know, sort of mimic what we find in the Calvert, uh, you know, George and Cecil Calvert, Maryland regime. As long as Catholics are quiet in their in their Catholicism, um, they didn't even have to take a, an oath that denied all these papal authorities as before. And yet, Charles Carroll uh, and his experience in Maryland shows that toleration is actually not uh, the best form of uh, securing peace and rights for Catholics. If a sovereign can give it, a sovereign can take it away. Mm. And so if it's not grounded in what we would call natural rights thinking, you're going to be in a perpetual state um, of, of fearing, right, um, of the existence of your, um, of your religion as, as free. So, you know, Charles Carroll's experience, and I'm now speaking of Charles Carroll of Carrollton, the one who signed the Declaration of Independence, became a U.S. senator and uh, was part of the war effort and uh, many other uh, illustrious activities. He looks at the Maryland Charter and says, yes, that, that was, it shows that the king can respect us, that Catholics can be loyal, but it also shows that things can easily change if um, we don't secure these in, in sort of a, a body of liberties, an actual law that is not just based on a kind of toleration, which is to say, we don't like it, but we'll allow it for this time being. And so he later says when he signed the Declaration of Independence, he had in mind the full religious liberty and civil rights of, of all Christians. And so I think we have good reason to believe that for Charles Carroll and other Catholics who are of the revolutionary mindset, what they want to do is sort of refound their now state of Maryland on firmer grounds than than just mere toleration. And again, this is where conciliarism comes into play, right? Because it's that lens of skepticism and discomfort with the concentration of temporal authority in one individual, whether it's the Pope, whether it's the British sovereign, and how civil liberties are best safeguarded when there's there's a larger body of decision makers who are serving as the authority. And I guess that's where the thinking co- comes in for a lot of American Catholics in, in deciding, all right, we are going to join the revolution. I think that's right. I think at bottom here, we're talking about a sort of fundamental assumption that arbitrary authority is unacceptable. You have to ground authority on laws in which you're, you create the law, right? Or at least your representatives do. And um, that you would follow the laws rather than follow just the dictates of, of an arbitrary will. And so in both Republican thinking and conciliar or conciliarist thinking, we have essentially the same assumption that arbitrary absolute authority uh, is unacceptable. That's why I think someone like Charles Carroll can see these as compatible, where, you know, someone who signs the Declaration of Independence, which declares, you know, the states free and independent, a phrase that we find uh, in Republican thinking that uh, is basically the antithesis of papalism, right? The idea that the Pope is sort of uh, an absolute monarch who can intervene in the temporal affairs of other countries. That's why he can sign that docu- document, even as the Pope is saying, you know, the King George III is the best of sovereigns, right? The most you know, benevolent and so on. And so I think that's, that's the way that Charles Carroll and other Catholics of, of his ilk sort of justify their involvement in the revolution. And again, it's sort of reluctant, right? Because in some ways they identify themselves as English in many ways, right? And they they do so in the French and Indian War, so-called, right? The Seven Years' War. They are educated in France, but that, that does not mean that they're allied politically with the French. Charles Carroll in one letter says, you know, it'd be better to live in England, even though Catholicism is not the official religion. Because in a place like France, there's deadening absolutism. Mm. Um, civil, civil liberties are not secured. So he'd rather live in an English government. So it's a reluctant sort of, he's a sort of reluctant revolutionary in some ways. And it is only when King George III proves himself to be unwilling to listen to the remonstrances of the American colonies that he finally throws his lot with the, with the, with the rebels or patriots, as you will. I think your segment in the book on the American Revolution was probably the most unsettling for me. I am to please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I say that because what was on display was 
the messiness and the rivalries and the scandals and all the dirty laundry within the Catholic community. It was, yes. I'm talking in an internecine type of way. You had English Catholics who fought with the crown, with the British forces, against the American forces, or with whom many American Catholics took up arms. You had a small minority of American Catholics who refused to go along with the revolutionaries and, and threw their lot in with the Brits. And then in the lead up to the war, you had a delegation of Americans, including some of the Carols, who went up north into Quebec to try and generate and solicit their support for the revolution. And this was shortly after the Americans had tried to invade Quebec and shortly after essentially saying that they found the liberties afforded to Catholics in Quebec distasteful. I mean, there's so many layers of, of messiness and complexity to this, to this situation. I think, I think one of the reasons I found it so unsettling is you could sympathize with the Catholic parties on either side, but how do we discern who is right? Was, was one party more on the side of the angels than the others? Or is this all just kind of a matter of prudential judgment? And that no doctrines were necessarily being violated because the magisterium of the church allows for different forms of government. I don't know if it's that simple. I'm sorry, I don't know if that argument is, is just that simple because there, there were so many layers of complexity here. I don't, know, I don't know how to make sense of it all. I agree with you. I, I, I didn't start writing the book with any preconceived notion about how I wanted it to be. Um, and in fact, once it was completed, I realized that I, I share your, your your thought. There's a lot of this that can be a little bit unsettling because they um, are dealing with situations that, that we haven't dealt with. And sometimes their um, solutions can be things they say, I don't know if that, I, I'm not sure if that's sort of theologically sound or or politically prudent or or something like that. And so that's, I think, the benefit of history in which we can sort of put ourselves in, in another person's uh, context, develop some, some kind of empathy, I think, and uh, sort of scramble some of the categories uh, of, you know, integralism and ultramontanism that we, you know, in Catholic circles uh, deal with now. So I think it's, it's a deeply relevant uh, inquiry because it, it does jolt us out of our um, complacency in our own context. I think you can look at the American Revolution, as, as other scholars do, as a civil war. I also mm. think you can look at the American Revolution through the lens of the Catholic Church as a, a, deep, a deeply divided church on political questions. I mean, to be Catholic did, did not determine one's political allegiances in this, in this uh, conflict. As you say, you have Scottish and English Catholics who are fighting for the crown, and you have Catholics who are loyalists from, say, New York, um, and you have Catholics uh, who are patriots, say, from, from Maryland. Uh, and of course, you have Catholic loyalists in Canada. So it is not determined whatsoever politically. And so how do we sort this out? Well, I mean, we haven't talked about John Carroll, the first Bishop of Baltimore yet. And I think it'd be good to introduce him. Um, he was a Jesuit who was in some ways an ex-Jesuit because the order had been suppressed by the Pope in his lifetime. So, but he's a Catholic priest even after the suppression of his Jesuit order. And he's on this, uh, this envoy, this, this embassy to Canada to curry favor with the Catholics there. Um, interestingly enough, he was not appointed by Congress for this. Charles Carroll was, and then Charles Carroll was tasked to ask the Reverend John Carroll, which means that Congress was pretty careful not to appoint a Catholic priest um, for one of its uh, official missions. But it did appoint Charles Carroll a Catholic for this which I think is the first time a U.S. Con uh, well, a Continental Congress in this case, appoints a Catholic uh, for an official delegation. And so they go up to Canada, and John Carroll, again, is reluctant to do this. He knows that when priests intervene in political affairs, it doesn't always end well for either the political uh, or the ecclesiastical realm. Um, but he does so as a good patriot. Um, he knows French because he was educated in Franco Francophone uh, countries. And he goes with his uh, second cousin, Charles Carroll. Now, he is reluctant because in one of his letters, he says, you know, the American situation is different from the Canada situation, right? Um, in Canada, they have received the free exercise of religion by their government. He doesn't see them, they're having a great justification for revolution, or at least for joining the Americans in theirs. Um, but he's willing to do it for his country and, uh, you know, to see if they can find some recruits or at least to help relations between Catholics in Canada and America, because Bishop Briand says that, um, you know, anyone who aids and abets 
uh, what he calls the Boston A, which is his pejorative term for any American who supports the the Patriot cause, will be, you know, receive some kind of uh, ecclesiastical injunction. And especially if anyone houses John Carroll. Bishop Beyond, he's the bishop in Quebec. Yeah, that's right. He's uh, very much against the American Revolution. Return to the theme of messiness, that's in stark contrast to the perspective of his confreres in La Metropole, in France itself. I mean, French Catholics joined the American forces uh, yes. during the Revolution. So even, even the French Catholics are divided. Very good point. And so when J- John Carroll goes up, he, he is housed by a fellow ex-Jesuit. And this Jesuit um, who houses him is reprimanded for doing so. Now, the reason why I bring up John Carroll is because effectively what he says is, you know, for the Americans, they have a good case. For the Quebecois, maybe not. It is a matter of political prudence, to, to your point, for someone like John Carroll. And he doesn't take these decisions lightly. Um, he thinks they're incredibly messy. But again, he sees the opportunity, especially for the Catholic Church, to gain a foothold in that new country, to ground it on natural right of religious, not just toleration, but liberty, um, and sees this as a great way to wrest hold of the you know, sort of Protestant establishment. Um, that will at least allow now Catholics uh, to freely exercise their religion and not incur any civil penalties for it. It's extraordinary, again, I mean, one of the amazing takeaways from your book, once all the proverbial dust settles from the Revolutionary War, the participation of American Catholics with, with the Revolutionary Forces bodes very favorably for them, uh, at least in the short and, and the midterm. The fact that they took up arms with their Protestant brethren against the British crown, yes. I mean, th- that is cited over and over again as the young country is setting up its institutions, it's debating constitutional provisions. That's cited over and over again by folks like George Washington, James Madison, as a tribute, as a witness to the ability of Catholics to be good citizens in this new republic. Now it doesn't it doesn't get them any it doesn't get them everything and as as we see later in the 1800s with other waves of European immigrants bringing with them more papalist or more what we might call ultramontane views of the church i.e. pope as strongman that doesn't get them everything but in the, in the early years post revolution it gets them a lot. One question I want to ask in all of this it's kind of in the early years post revolution that the early seeds of the concept of church-state separation in an American t- context are more formalized. They're, they're more formally articulated. And, and part of the, the argument in your book, it seems, is there was a distinct Catholic contribution, particularly through the conciliarist tradition, to this f- formation of the understanding of the, of the juridical, i.e. kind of the entity separation, you know, government, you do temporal affairs, church, you do spiritual. But the concept of church and state separation has become so, has, has morphed so much and become distorted, and it kind of means anything to anybody. Do you think Catholics should take pride in the contribution which you describe in your book to that quintessentially American understanding of church and state separation? Well, I think certainly there's much to celebrate in the Catholic contributions at the American founding. As James Madison and George Washington and many others recognize, they sacrificed a lot and um, they presented themselves as, as loyal to the New Republic. And, you know, Daniel Carroll, uh, John Carroll's brother, becomes a, a congressman in the First Federal Congress, an amazing transformation, right, where a Catholic can actually join Congress, whereas its counterpart, Parliament, would not allow Catholics for um, several more decades into the next century. Um, so certainly there's a lot to celebrate here. In terms of the First Amendment, Daniel Carroll was the only person on the House floor to unambiguously support what James Madison uh, supported in what became the First Amendment, the religion clauses. I think there was actually a coordinated effort uh, between Daniel Carroll and James Madison on that, on that front. And so if James Madison is the father of the Constitution, I think Daniel Carroll should be considered a godfather of the First Amendment. This was meant to sort of reconcile anti-federalists, those who had not supported initially the U.S. Constitution, to join them in the new federal establishment. So certainly there's a lot that Catholics did. Thomas Lloyd, for instance, the reporter who recorded the debates about the First Amendment, was in fact Catholic. 
And uh, I think he gives pride of place uh, for Daniel Carroll's speech on the House floor. Um, so there's a lot of sort of Catholic history. You know, I think the first uh, history of the First Amendment was actually written by a Catholic because of this, this journalist who wrote down what the uh, congressman said. So it's certainly a lot to celebrate, but not everything is resolved. As you mentioned, in the 19th and 20th century, the same old shibboleths against Catholics, particularly on the question of papal authority, come up. So much so that by the time we get to 1960 and John F. Kennedy uh, is running for president, he has to again articulate this separation of church and state, right? No church, the church does not speak for me. I do not speak for the church. You know, no pope can tell me what to do effectively as, as president of the United States and so on. He says, you know, JFK says this much more boldly than any Catholic that I have studied in the 17th and 18th century. But um, effectively, it's the same kind of argument we get with Al Smith, who ran for U.S. president uh, earlier in that century. And so this is the sort of common conciliarist assumption that one has to present oneself as loyal uh, by denying certain papal authority, and then also bearing witness to this juridical separation of church and state. Now, juridical separation, I think, is the operative word here. It's not an absolute separation in which politics and faith, broadly speaking, can't uh, intermix. It's not a separation that means that governments can't fund religious organizations in any way. Um, for instance, uh, Congress appointed appropriated money uh, for Catholic and Protestant ministers to, as they called it, uh, civilize Native Americans, and as the ministers thought of it as evangelizing to them. Uh, and that's from, from federal money. Uh, there's lots of other examples uh, to show in which um, governments had supported religion in some particular way. So um, I think, you know, these Catholics are are of the belief that their religion should inform their morality, their morality should inform their politics and their voting. Um, so it's not an absolute separation, but it does mean that on the question of internal governance of a church, the church really, the state really does not have much authority over it. And we get that time and time again in Catholic institutions as well. At the same time, uh, Catholics don't always convince others that their loyalty is undivided. So this is something that I think is still a, a debate today. Yeah, uh, and, and just in, in, in our remaining time, there are just a couple of propositions uh, I'd, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on. One, it, it struck me that the conciliarist line of thought was was partially or maybe fully vindicated with the declaration of papal infallibility in Vatican I, because the, the Vatican I declaration of infallibility there was very narrow. It was very circumscribed, and it was limited to matters of faith and morals, es cathedra, and maybe tacitly or implicitly uh, vindicated a school of thought that, that said, yeah, papal infallibility does not extend into the involvement in tempo temporal affairs. Yeah, so Vatican I is a, is a paradoxical uh, victory, you might say, for conciliarism. It also resigned conciliarism in another way to the ashship of heresy, right? So on one level, Vatican I does declare that there is such thing as papal infallibility in himself, but it does so with the authority of a council. Right, so exactly. In some ways, you know, conciliarism uh, fails because it succeeds. And so... But you're right to say that it's, it was a highly circumscribed kind of definition. And I say that because, you know, we, I, I've seen, you know, letters among cardinals and so on in which they speculate, oh, was that statement ex cathedra or not? Like, they, they don't really know. They don't have a good litmus test. So I, I think you're right in some respects. And at the same time, though, the, the, the people who, the bishops who did vote against it or didn't vote at all because of, as a protest, uh, many of them were American. And the word that they used was it was inopportune. And what they meant by that was, this is not going to bode well uh, back home in my diocese, right? Protestants are going to be infuriated by this. This is going to fan the flames of anti-Catholicism. And it did, um, yeah, but, but not in a substantial way such that we get um, the kind of anti-Catholicism that we get in the 16th, 17th, even 18th centuries. So in some ways, what's off the table is to deny paper fallibility. But Vatican once um, made it in a limited way such that um, the fears, right, of this kind of deadening absolutism, this arbitrary will, was a bit more tempered. And so in some ways, it's a, it's a more complicated victory. Uh, but it remains really at the level, not so much of practicalities, but of theory. Is the view that 
you know, that the Pope has the power to intervene in temporal affairs, maybe not annulling civil laws, but, you know, in, in the other ways that we talked about, um, is that compatible with Republican theory, right? The, the theory that's sort of, I, I think, uh, baked into the American um, constitutional order. Um, is the Declaration of Independence, right, compatible with this, even, even a kind of, um, you know, 20th or 21st century Catholic view of the church? Those are the kind of questions that I think are being played out right now with the integralism, ultramontanism sort of debates. And I, and I think it would be, it, people would do well to research this particular history to see the ways in which actual Catholics have played this out and the kind of compromises and, and solutions that they, that they presented um, to make it at least practically possible for Catholics to serve in public office, for Catholics to be considered good citizens and to do good, to, to do good works as citizens. Yeah, and, and I think that's just a good segue into the, the final two propositions which I'll share with you and, and we'll close on this. Yes, you know, we've reached a point where Catholics can hold public office and, and we have a, a self-identifying Catholic currently in, in the Oval Office in the United States. But, but I think part of the beauty of, of your book in this chronicle is political action doesn't get you everything. And we, we saw that in Maryland. We saw that post-revolution. The, the yardsticks were moved forward, particularly f- for Catholics in America. Uh, but that's not to say the discrimination and the persecution fell by the wayside. Uh, and in fact, sometimes it took decades after the measurable, significant movement forward of the yardsticks before one could say that the social fabric of life in the United States was, was more favorable and more conducive to Catholics. Uh, and, and I think kind of a flip side, a flip side of that recognition that political action doesn't get you everything. Political action doesn't get you everything is something important to bear in mind, particularly in, in our time, because there seems to be a lack of consensus on that. I know Catholics, and I'll throw myself in this lot. We we kind of hitch our cart to the wagon of political success, and there's division that flows from that in, in terms of lack of absence of consensus in the political realm, even amongst Catholics. Uh, and, and it's an echo that that lack of consensus and division amongst Catholics, as, as your history points out, I mean, that's an echo of our legacy, our, our legacy as Catholics, not just in America, but in North America, and it seems all around the world for much of history, our legacy as Catholics and as a church, it's messiness, it's, it's division. Perhaps tacitly, what your, a message from your book is we need to reconcile ourselves with that. And maybe there needs to be this recognition of where, where there's where there's prudential decisions that that we can make uh, within within the legitimate prudential decisions we can make within um, the magisterial guidance of our faith. We need to recognize where we're going to have common ground and, and where there's room for a lo- for a lack of consensus. Well, what would be your thoughts on all that? I think that's very well put. I think um, if anything, uh, if we can abstract a little bit from. Uh, from the ecclesiology and the, the politics, I think we can say, you know, we're, we're both soul and body. And so in some ways, um, uh, we're going to have uh, conflicts sometimes between uh, the things that we need to do in the temporal realm and the things that we need to do in the spiritual realm. Um, this, is, this is our pilgrim uh, status. And so um, we, are, we are, you know, on this journey and... Um, the conflicts of church and state uh, and the conflicts within each realm um, in some ways are representative of the conflicts within each of each of us as, as, as within, in, within each human heart and soul. That's right. And so I think in some ways you can, this can be um, a great uh, motivation for introspection about the ways in which, you know, I'm conducting myself right as, as a religious believer and as a citizen. And of course, um, your your conscience is going to sort of uh, guide uh, your political actions, your economic relations, your personal relations, and so on. And so this is, I think, a call to, uh, as you say, prudence about how you how you best sort of um, sort of connect these things. So um, you know, when you think about being a citizen, it's not just voting, right? I mean, it's a it's a duty to vote and so on. It's a it's a great privilege, in fact, as well. Um, but the daily interactions we have, right? This is why I love the fine grain history of, of Maryland. It shows the way in which religious liberty was not just some kind of legal sort of decree or something like that. It was a lived experience. People lived side by side, Catholic and Protestant. They had to get along. They married each other. They sometimes went to each other's services. Um, they 
conducted commerce with one another. That's really the lived experience that provides the foundation, you might say, for um, authentic law and, and practice. So I think that's an important takeaway uh, for, for this kind of story. We're going to have to end our conversation there. I will commend energetically to all of our listeners Dr. Breidenbach's book, Our Dear Bot Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. Dr. Breidenbach, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.